It's my second gathering with believers today. I had the privilege of doing a, a sunrise service um, at home, but it was cool. Got to preach the gospel, so praise God for that. Well, I'm excited to be here. I hope you are as well. I hope you came hungry. I do. Let me pray once more, and we're going to dive in. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, your Son. It is by His grace and because of His life, death, and resurrection that we can call you Father, that we can come gladly and joyfully and with great assurance and with great hope. I do pray that all who are here this morning would come longing to look into the glorious doctrine, the glorious truth, the glorious event of the resurrection of the Son of God. Father, help us to understand the significance of the empty tomb and to live differently because of it and to proclaim it to the world around us for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The title of my sermon this morning is Jesus is Risen. And the big idea, the resurrection is everything. It is everything. Without the resurrection, we have nothing. Um, Paul begins our passage by positing this hypothetical, which I'll talk about more, but let me posit one now, a hypothetical. If you're married, raise your hand. Okay, imagine life without your spouse. I'm celebrating in a couple of weeks, uh, 11 years with Haley, April 30th. I'm so thankful for my beautiful wife. I love her dearly, and I cannot imagine life without her. And we have three children together, and I can't imagine life without my children. It's hard. It's sad to think of that. On a lighter note, can you imagine a morning without coffee? When I lived in Africa, and Africa has some of the best coffee in the world, but where I lived in Cameroon, I didn't have coffee. It was rough. I would have settled for anything. Sure, fine. I like Folgers. Give me Folgers, but there's no coffee. Imagine Christianity without the resurrection. You can't because there is no Christianity without the resurrection. There's no gospel without the empty tomb. So why why is the resurrection such a big deal? Why is it so important? Well, earlier, and we didn't read this, I told you. Earlier, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, we see that the resurrection is at the heart of the gospel. So imagine the gospel as a coin, and like any coin, there's two sides, and one side of that coin is the death of Jesus, and the other side is the resurrection. And if you take away the resurrection, you have no gospel. So let me just read this carefully. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the the gospel, that word means good news, I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast, to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what is the gospel? What's the good news? Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the point is, there is no gospel without the resurrection. And think of Jesus in... In Mark 8-10, to this is a really cool section in Mark's Gospel, three times Jesus speaks of his impending death. But every time he does that, he ends with his resurrection, right? I'm going to be killed, handed over, beaten, I'm going to die, but guess what? Three days later, I'm going to be raised. If there's no resurrection, what does that say about Jesus? He is a what? He's a liar. He's a liar. 
Two verses later, so let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. We ended in verse 4. Two verses later, we learn that the resurrected Christ appeared to over 500 believers at the same time. So the resurrection of Jesus happened. It was promised according to the Scriptures, and it was witnessed by the early church. In our passage, Paul spells out the the theological significance of the resurrection. So we have three things in our passage that I want us to look at this morning. Number one is the hypothetical. Paul tells us what it means, what it would mean, if there were no resurrection. If Christ wasn't raised, here would be the state of things. And it's very bleak. It's, it's, It's actually hopeless and helpless. It's no good. He then, this is the affirmations of the hypothetical. We'll look at that first. Then we have the affirmation. In verse 20, he actually affirms the resurrection. It happened. But in fact, Christ was raised. And then thirdly, he spells out the wonderful, earth-shattering implications of the resurrection, answering the question of so what? Christ was raised, so what? So we have, number one, the hypothetical. Two, the affirmation. Three, the implications. Let me give a little context here. What issue is Paul addressing in our passage? Some of the Corinthians were denying the future resurrection of believers. And this was likely due to the Greco-Roman understanding of the afterlife. Okay, So they thought a little bit differently about the afterlife than the Jews. They believed that the soul was liberated from the body at death. They viewed the body as a prison. And in in much Greek thought, the the, the body, the flesh, the, the tangible was viewed as inherently bad. It was less than, right? So to die was to escape the body. That worldview, however, was at odds with the Bible. The Bible teaches that God made our bodies what? Good. And that this future bodily resurrection is the hope of God's people. That's Daniel 12. So Paul's argument is, okay, if there's no resurrection, then not even Christ was raised, And if Christ wasn't raised, there's no good news. The gospel's gone. We have no gospel. Okay, so let's start with the hypothetical. And again, why would Paul do this? Why would Paul give us this hypothetical? Okay, if if Christ wasn't raised, here would be the state of things. Because he wants to bring to light the gravity of the resurrection. He wants us to see how significant it is that the tomb is in fact what? It's empty. So number one, The hypothetical, what would it mean if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen? First, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So if you're taking notes, if Christ wasn't raised, then there is no gospel to preach, and therefore there's no gospel to believe in. Okay, so if Christ wasn't raised, there's no gospel to preach, and there's no gospel to believe in. The the Greek word for vain is hinos. It pertains to that which is untrue or lacking in truth, that which is spiritually empty. Paul is saying that without the resurrection of Jesus, our preaching is empty, and so is our faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus, our preaching and our faith is simply without substance. Okay, So that's the first implication, if there is no resurrection of Jesus. Verse 15, he goes on, right? So again... The hypothetical is, if Christ wasn't raised, this will be the state of things. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, 
whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So next Paul says that if Christ was not raised, then what are we doing? We are misrepresenting God. That's a scary thought. We're making false statements about God. That's not good, right? Told you guys. Why? Because what do Christians declare? We declare boldly, joyfully, hopefully the empty tomb. But if the tomb is full, we're liars. We're liars. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sin. So if Christ hasn't been raised, then our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. What does that mean? The, the Greek word for futile is mateos. Everybody say mateos. Mateos. Wow, that was... It means to be useless, okay? So Paul is saying if, if Christ was not raised, our faith is useless. Why is it useless? Because if Christ wasn't raised, then we're still in our sins. We're still objects of God's wrath headed to hell. There is a direct correlation between the empty tomb and the effectiveness of the cross, okay? The empty tomb means that the cross worked. It worked. Christ's sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. The empty tomb, Christ's resurrection, is His great vindication. God won. Amen? Romans 4.25, Paul says of Christ, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So if Christ wasn't raised, we are not what? We're not justified, meaning we are declared guilty right now. Is that significant? I can't think of anything more significant, honestly. Verse 18. You're thinking, Chris, stop! I don't want to think this way. Well, we need to think this way. This is what's at stake. Verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So if, if Christ hasn't been raised, then Christians who have died have no hope. They have no hope. They're forever lost. Their hope died with them if Christ wasn't raised. Christians believe that the resurrected and ascended Savior, Jesus, blazed a trail back to heaven for us. If Christ wasn't raised, then the way to the Father no longer exists. There is no John 14, 6, right? There is no way, truth, and life in Jesus if he was, in fact, not raised. Listen to this quote from Leon Morris. He writes, For pagans, death was the end of everything. It's pretty bleak. It's over. It was an adversary that would, in the end, defeat everybody. But for Christians, it was no more than sleep. Christ had drawn the, the sting from it. Okay, so he'd drawn the sting from it. Death is now gained so that Paul can desire to depart and be with Christ. Thus, when believers died, they were not mourned as people irretrievably lost. They were with Christ. But only, Paul insists, if there is a resurrection. If Christ did not rise, then neither will they. In that event, they are lost, they have perished. Two more. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, what does Paul say? Again, very direct. We are of all people most to be pitied. We're a pitiful bunch, folks. Why? Why? Why pity us if Christ was not raised? The Greek word for pity pertains to being deserving of pity in light of an extremely miserable position. If Christ 
wasn't raised, our position right now is most miserable. We're to be pitied above all others. Why? Because without the resurrection, Christianity is a lie. It's a lie. We have had the wool pulled over our eyes. Our future hope is everything. Amen? It's everything. It is the basis for the peace and joy we now have in the present. Without the resurrection, there is no peace. There is no joy. Finally, we're going to skip ahead. We didn't read this, but in verse 32, Paul says, okay, listen, if, then follow his logic. If the dead aren't raised, Christ wasn't raised, right? And if Christ wasn't raised, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's just embrace hedonism. Let's just live for this world, because that's all there is if Christ wasn't raised. Let's go party. I'm not going anywhere. Why? We're not going anywhere. Why? Because the tomb is what? It's empty. Amen? In some, if Christ wasn't raised, then our preaching is empty. We're liars. We're still under God's wrath. Those who have died in Christ are forever lost. We are to be pitied more than all. And we might as well live for ourselves in the world because that's all there is if Christ wasn't raised. But thankfully, thankfully, what is the reality? What is the truth? What do we base our lives on? Why are we here? Because Christ is raised. And that's number two, the affirmation, the resurrection of Christ affirmed. This is the real state of things. This is the real state of things. But, everybody say but. I love the buts of Scripture. They're so significant. They are so theologically significant. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This represents the crescendo, the climax of our passage. Paul states the resurrection matter-of-factly, right? Paul doesn't say, oh, oh, I really hope it's true. I mean, I really hope Christ is alive. No, what does he say? But in fact, everybody say fact. Take it to the bank, right? In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, the word but carries great theological significance. It's an adversative often used by Paul to bring to light the true reality of the believer's situation, our true condition. It's used to make a point. It's just Paul's saying, but here's the real situation. Look how he does it in Ephesians 2, 1-4. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So Paul's speaking of the believer before they trusted in Christ. So you were dead, right, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Okay, so we were dead spiritually, under God's wrath, in league with Satan, headed to hell. Everybody say, but God. Well, that's one of those, like, yes, right? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Morris writes, but is adversative. Far from Christians being the most to be pitied among men, the fact of the resurrection alters the whole situation. Paul states this fact with simplicity and assurance. 
oh, I didn't include this. Yeah, I should. A little Greek. Paul uses in the original Greek what's called the perfect tense for the verb raise. The, you're like, what, who cares? You should care. Here's why. The perfect tense in Greek is used to describe a past action, a past event, the effects of which are still felt in the present. What this means is that not only did the resurrection happen, but the event itself continues to impact people now. Oh, that's pretty powerful, right? It didn't just happen 2,000 years ago. Like, it's done. It did happen, but it's so powerful that the effects of it are still felt today, still applied today. The effects of the resurrection continue to have implications for the church. Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. I beat you to it. And he remains risen, okay? He remains risen. And the risen Christ continues to do what? Transform lives. Because Christ is alive, those who are united to him by faith are alive and will live forever with the resurrected king. Everybody say amen. Amen. That's good news. That's why we're here. Here's what I want to do now. I want us to go back to the hypothetical, okay? That long list that we looked at. And I want us to rework that list in light of the resurrection, okay? So these things that would be denied if Christ was still in the grave are now affirmed because Christ is in fact what? He's risen. Okay, so what this means is that our preaching, number one, our preaching in faith is both substantial and substantiated. It means that we are in fact representing God faithfully. We're not telling lies when we preach the gospel. Why? Because Jesus is in fact what? He's raised. It means that we are forgiven because our faith is in the risen Christ. It means that the dead in Christ do in fact have hope. Amen? It means that we're not to be pitied, but rather we are to pity those who don't share this hope. And it means that our life does have purpose. Don't leave here and go party, right? You know what I mean by that, right? I mean, I hope you have a party at your house. We're going to eat some brisket. I can't wait, but I will, and you will too, okay? we got more to talk about here. But... Paul's point is, if there's no resurrection, there's no purpose in life, Christ has been raised, therefore the believer has what? We got purpose, and what is our purpose? To live for the glory of God and to proclaim as God's people the resurrection so that God might be glorified by more and more sinners turning from their sin and trusting in the resurrected king. Number three, the implications. So we've looked at what? The hypothetical. Number two, the affirmation, Christ has been raised. And number three, the implications. And, and this is really the so what question. Christ has been raised, so what? What does that mean? Jesus' past resurrection means future resurrection for believers in Christ. Morris writes, from the hypothetical statements of the previous passage with its seven ifs, Paul turns now to certainties the certainty of Christ's resurrection and of its consequences. Okay, so what does the resurrection mean for believers? What are its implications? Three things. How many? We're going to move quickly. Three things here. Verse 20 and verse 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, 
And here's the word I want you to circle or underline or at least keep a mental note of. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. If you're taking notes, Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection, those who have trusted in Jesus. So my boys and I, Clarky and Luke, do you guys like popcorn? Both of you, yes, yes, Dad, we love popcorn. So we'll do a movie night once or twice a week, and we make popcorn. Now, what's funny, everybody's microwave's different. Everybody's microwave has that sweet spot. Yours might be 230, mine's 220. If I do 230, Aaron, the popcorn's done, it's burnt, I gotta start over. If I do 215, I've lost some kernels. That, that, there was potential for more in the bag. Now daddy doesn't get to eat because I'm gonna give it to the kids first, right? So 220. Like, what are you talking about? How did you go from the resurrection to popcorn? Listen, don't miss this. It takes about, what, 20 seconds before that initial what? That initial, but then once you hear that first pop, what does it mean? It's on. There's more pops, right? It's like, pop, 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 pop. That's what the resurrection is. Christ raised first. He's that first pop, guaranteeing our pops. Our, maybe that wasn't a good illustration. Let me try it again. It makes sense to me. I, I like it. We just planted a garden. We doubled our garden from last year, right? And if you plant seeds, you're waiting for that initial bud. Now we're getting closer to the illustration used by Paul, which is probably what I should have done, but... That first bud means what? More buds are coming up, right? So Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Now, how does that work? Well, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation, right? But if you're in Christ, how do you get in Christ? It's Paul's favorite phrase, in Christ. Hey, you're in Christ. What does that mean? It means to be united to Christ by faith. And what's true for him is now true for us. One more illustration. David and Goliath, right? So in ancient times, Instead of having both armies just slug it out to the end, oftentimes they would each elect their champion, okay, and they would go to battle. And so who's the champion of the Philistines? Goliath and Israel? Kind of self-appointed, right? I'll go fight. Uh, well, who wins? No, God wins. Good. Uh, yes, David wins. Okay. But what did that victory mean for Israel? Who else won? Everybody won, right? All of Israel won. Because David won. Who won at the empty tomb? Christ. And those who are connected to him by faith, guess what? We win. We're going to be raised. He's been raised. We shall be what? Raised. All right, number two. Number two. Verses 24 to 26. Then comes the end. Man, this passage covers so much. When he delivers the kingdom of God when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So number two, one, his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Number two, his victory and vindication as seen in his resurrection means the defeat of all of God's enemies. Yes! <laughs> Recall the picture painted for us in Revelation 21, 1-4. If Christ had not been raised, there'd be no Revelation 21, 1-4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, listen. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death, everybody say death. No mas, right? Shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Again, this only happens if Christ was indeed raised. Christ's resurrection means all the enemies opposed to God and His people will finally and definitively and eternally be put down. Amen? That is our hope. Is true? All right, one more. One more. Verses 27 and 28. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Whose feet here? Jesus. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. The Father put all things in subjection under Christ. When all things are subjected to him, Jesus, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him. Here's the phrase I want us to park on a little bit. That God may be all in all. Oh, that is cool. We'll get there soon. Number three, Christ's resurrection guarantees. I love a guarantee, don't you? I mean, who doesn't like a guarantee? Take this medicine and you'll get better. Great! Hey, sign this piece of paper. If anything happens to your vehicle, we guarantee to replace it. Love it. Fantastic. Christ's resurrection guarantees the glorious end of our story, which is God ruling over all. That's the end of our story. That is where we're headed, believers. God ruling victoriously over all, over everything. Recall Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew 28, 18. This is the Great Commission. This is post-resurrection after Jesus has been raised. Shook off death, right? No mas. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is powerful. Amen? He's powerful. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. The Father has given the Son this authority. So after Christ... After Jesus has put down every enemy opposed to God and his rule, then perfect, holy order will be fully and finally restored. Everything will be subjected to God the Father. Now, this does not mean that the Son and the Holy Spirit are inferior to God the Father. Each member of the Trinity is equally divine. The difference is one of function or office rather than nature, divinity, or dignity. The Son sent by the Father seeks the glory of the Father. Right? According to John 13, 31-32, the work of the Son is for the glory of the Father. And that in Him, in Christ. And in the end, everybody say in the end. God, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be glorified in His fully established rule over some things? No? 
all things. This is a long quote by Harold Mayer. And I'd guarantee maybe one of you has heard of Harold Mayer, New Testament scholar, old school. It's a long quote. Should I read it? I'm going to. Verse 28 suggests that the Son, in a certain sense, will be made subject to God the Father. Okay, we've established that. That this does not mean inferiority of person or nature is shown by the future tense of the verb. The Son himself will be made subject. If there were inherent inferiority, the present tense will be expected, i.e., he is ever subjected to the Father. But the future aspect of Christ's subjection to the Father must rather be viewed in the light of the administration process in which the world is brought from its sin and disorder into order by the power of the Son who died and was raised and who then, in the economy of the Godhead, turns it all over to God the Father, the supreme administrative head. Last sentence. And this is to be done so that God will be recognized by all as sovereign, and he, the triune God, will be supreme. Here's the point. The resurrection means that one day God in all his glory will rule over all. Over all. Now Calvin says it in a much more pithy manner. All things will be brought back to God as their alone beginning and end that they may be closely bound to him. Now, take a little mental stretch really fast. That quote may have done you in. I'm sorry. But get this, okay? This is really important. What this reveals, and this is a tough text, by the way. This is a really hard path. I think it is. Aaron, tough text, right? What this reveals is that God's future final kingdom is not one of power grabbing, but of humble, voluntary, loving submission to God as demonstrated by the who? The Son, who is fully God and one with the Father. And this for the glory of God. Check this. Even into eternity, which makes Clark's head hurt. Mine too, right? Forever. Even into eternity, we have the glorious example of the Son on display showing us how to relate to God and to live appropriately in His kingdom. What grace, what glory. The resurrection means that God has won. How do we share in this victory? Tell me, how do we share in this victory? We trust in Jesus. We trust in Jesus. Now, I told you we'd come back to the phrase that God may be all in all. This speaks to the unchallenged reign of God. The powers of evil will be totally vanquished. God's resurrected people in Christ will exist forever in God's glorious kingdom. In raising Christ from the dead, listen to this, in raising Christ from the dead, God demonstrates His power over the enemy of death. If Christ wasn't raised, then even death is more powerful than God. And therefore, there is no future hope free of death or any of the enemies opposed to God's people. Do you guys realize what hangs on the resurrection? Everything. But the resurrection happened. It changed everything, meaning it guarantees this future final hope. A glorious future with God as king 
ruling over his rescued people. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, but bro, you can call me bro, it's fine. What kind of God is this? I'm not sure if I want him ruling over me forever. Right? I mean, what kind of God is he? Look to Jesus. Jesus shows us. He reveals God. He is God. And what do we know about Jesus? He's good. He's wise. He's benevolent. He's perfectly just. He's holy. He's loving. He's kind. He's merciful. Come under him, please. Let him rule over your life. Listen, I've tried ruling my life apart from Christ. What does it end in? Death, eternal death, eternal separation, hell. That's what you get if you seek to rule your life apart from Jesus. Instead, listen to the call. Get off the throne. Recognize the one true king who's more powerful than death, whose empty tomb has secured for us eternal life forgiveness with God forever. Amen? So trust in Jesus. Here are my three practice steps. Number one, all R's, by the way. What's a pirate's favorite letter? <laughs> Number one, rest in the resurrection. Take, now, what do I mean by that? Because the tomb is empty, we can rest knowing that the cross is effective. Everybody said the cross? It worked. It worked. Trust in Jesus, the Savior King, who lived, died, and rose again to rescue sinners. We can have assurance of salvation because Christ was what? He was raised. So rest. Rest in the risen Lord. Number two, review the resurrection. Why should we think about this often? What enabled Paul to live so well in the present, even in a jail cell? What enables us to live well in the midst of suffering and hardship? It's our view of the future. Amen? Think about the future. Christ has been raised. We will be raised. And if you know that and build your life on that, it will affect how you live now. So review the resurrection. Think about it often in the implications of this glorious doctrine. Lastly, report the resurrection. What does that mean? Tell others that Christ has been raised. The gospel means what? Good news. And what should we do with good news? Oh, I don't know. What do we do with it? What do we do with good news? We spread it. We proclaim it joyfully. Amen? I love the illustration of my children. Every birth, what am I doing? I'm calling everybody. Friends and family, ministry partners. Listen, Clark's here. Luke's here. Samantha's here. I'm putting my head out the, the hospital room, telling the nurses, he came. Yeah, we know. <laughs> We're busy. Tell the good news. When you preach the gospel, make sure you preach the resurrection because there is no gospel without the resurrection. Again, how have you responded to the resurrected Savior? I told the guys next year, maybe, I wanted to do a two-part sermon on apologetics, giving proof evidence for the resurrection. Maybe next year we'll do that. But let me leave you with this, if you're a skeptic here. If all we had was an empty tomb, some could say, well, you know what? The grave was probably robbed. That happened in ancient times, right? That was a thing. If all we had was visible appearances, because again, 
what does 1 Corinthians 15, 6 tell us? Over 500 people at the same time saw the resurrected Christ. But if that's all we had, people could say, well, hey, they, they, they hallucinated, right? They're seeing things. They're crazy. But, everybody say but. When you have an empty tomb plus visible appearances, whoa, you got a risen Savior, amen? You do. So what are you going to do with them? What are you going to do with them? Trust him. Love him. Follow him. He's worthy. Amen? There is hope in Christ. There is rescue in Christ. There is forgiveness in Christ. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus and follow him with God's people. If you're not a part of a church, join a church because the church is God's plan A for reaching the world with the gospel and growing his people in Christ's likeness. And so again, gather with the church weekly to celebrate this truth. Christ is risen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son that you sent to live the life we could not live, to die the death we deserved, and to be raised from the dead victoriously for our justification, guaranteeing our future resurrection, guaranteeing a world with no more evil or sin, all your enemies, God, put down you ruling over all because the tomb is empty. And Father, we thank you that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in your people, giving us the power and the strength to live for Jesus and to be conformed more and more to his image. Father, I pray that we would rest in this truth, that we would daily review this truth, and that we would boldly report this truth so that others may have the same hope that we have for your glory and their good. And all God's people said, in the mighty, matchless name of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.